0: One of my favorite preacher stories of Christmas is uh, about a, a lady who was in a hurry and preparing for Christmas, as you might relate to, as we only have less than two weeks, really, for Christmas now. And so she was in a flurry of activity, trying to get everything done and taken care of, and one of which of her to-do list was to purchase cards, and um, picked out some cards that looked really beautiful on the exterior, and just brought them home, and quickly started signing these things, addressing them. Uh, stamping them, stuffing them, and sending them on their way. One more thing off her to-do list. Finally, after the hustle bustle of Christmas was over with, and afterwards, uh, she thought, well, you know, that's a pretty card. I, let me see what was written inside this card. Uh, and she read with great horror and dismay that the card writ on the inside, this little note is just to say that a little gift is on its way. And she thought back to the 50 or so cards that she sent out and thought, oh, no. You know, I, I think that's a great story. It just kind of typifies something like I would do in being so careless and getting things done and, and realizing I've created much more work for myself. And, and you know, in the midst of all that activity and the things that we do and we quickly say to one another, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And we got to ask yourself, what does it mean exactly to say, Merry Christmas. I mean who uses the word merry anyway? Uh what does that entail? Well, I want to take your attention uh to the second quote of Christmas that we'll address this this uh series, and that is the quote from Zacharias in Luke chapter one, verse sixty-seven through fifty-five. We're taking quotes uh around the Christmas story and reading them and studying them and figuring out what what are exactly are they saying when they when they declare these things. Last week we looked at the angelic quote. Um, one of uh, four songs that's given to us. This is the, being the second one, the song of Zechariah. And the angelic message was really a declaration and one of saying, You don't have to fear anymore because born to you this day is a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And we talked about how uh, there is no more cause for fear, there's the cause for good news that comes from that. And so the message today is well, how can we be merry on Christmas time? Using Zechariah's quote uh, to give us some guidance and instruction. We're not going to look at the entirety of his quote, uh, as we did not do last week with the angelic message. Uh, but just the part that pertains to Christ being born. This is not a declaration. It is a prophecy uh, concerning Jesus before he's actually born. By uh, several months before he's born. And so, uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. and In honor of what we read, this being the word of God Uh, Together as God's people, let's stand as we read this in in recognition of of what we read together. Luke chapter 1, and this is actually one sentence, verse 67 through 75. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which he have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. You may be seated. After 75, he goes on and gives prophecy concerning his own son being born, a little boy named John. Give the background here Zacharias, he was a priest um, of the Levi tribe, and uh, it had come to him that on his lot, on his rotation, he was supposed to serve in the temple. It was his job to serve the altar of incense, which symbolized the prayers. And as he was in the the holy temple, uh, presenting his prayers, a a vision comes to him. An angel speaks to him and tells him that in his old age, him and his wife will have a son and they will call his name John. Now, Zacharias is not very believing of this message. And so, out of doubt, he asks a question How do I really know that's going to happen? And so, the, the angel says, Well, here's a sign. Speaking in his doubt, he says, hey, how do you like this sign? You're not going to speak. And you won't speak until the son's born. And you can imagine Zechariah thinking, I, and it hits him. Wow, I can't speak. And now for nine months, I won't be able to speak. And we get the idea as we read scripture they probably couldn't hear either. Uh, as they were having to make signs to him to communicate to him in verse 62, implying that he couldn't hear. Can you imagine what life would be like? Uh, being in that state, that situation. You can't speak. You can't hear. For nine months. Solitude. <laughs> you know, no radio. No TV. No conversations. Everything done by your looks. And looking at people. What would he be thinking about? Uh, what would his his mind be directed toward? Well... It's fascinating because we what we're going to look and study is the first words he speaks for nine months. He's being filled with the Holy Spirit and he's bursting and finally he comes out and says something. And we get the idea from reading the passage, this is a word from God through Zechariah. The idea is that they were going to have this child. This child would be the one who would come before Jesus. That was prophesied that someone would come before the Messiah uh, and to prepare the way. That was their job, is, is raise up this son. And so the son has been born. And there is a feud going on among the family at the circumcision of the baby. Is that the circumcision of the baby when they name the child? Uh, there's not much given about John's early brain, early up, uh, years. So it's interesting, anything that's included. Why is this included, this, this fight, this feud that's going on? Well, it's tradition that you name them after the father, and in so doing, it's not just giving them the same name, you're also giving them the same job, the same work. And so the idea was that this baby was to be ra- raised up to be a priest and to carry on what Zechariah did. And so, it's like, sure, we're going to name him Zechariah. But at the, at the time when the naming comes up, Elizabeth, the wife, says, no, we're not naming him Zechariah. Now, you could you imagine being Zechariah's mama and hearing your, your, your daughter-in-law saying, no, we're not naming him Zechariah? So, <laughs> wait a second. A fight goes on. And, uh, and this at this moment... God gives voice to Zechariah so he can speak in and weigh in on the decision. And say, no, he's going to be named John. And so, what's the first words? After writing out, giving the command, his name is John. uh, We find here uh, that the words given. We see in verse 67. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Uh, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. We don't use that word much anymore either, but it can mean happy. Happy are (laughs) merry. All right. Merry be the God of Israel. Happy be the God of Israel. Blessed be the God of Israel. He's bringing praise to him because of the attributes of God. And he's about to list out why this is a blessed time and a blessed God. Why is this a merry time? And he's going to give out the reasons why. And so he's just giving his praise. I, I was walking with my daughter last night. We were all walking the dog. And um, I don't know why it brought it up. At You know, walking out in the cold at night. She, she just said, well, 100 times Google is how God, God is better than 100 times Google anything else. I was, you know, sometimes they say these 100 times Google. I mean, they always want, what's the biggest number, you know? And they want to know what the biggest number. And he, it's hard to explain to them that there's always another number. But this is all we've got names for, you know. And so she's trying to find the largest adjective she can. The best adjective she can. She said, this is this is how God is. And I was just thinking about that. I was like, you know, you're right, sweetie. I said, you know, in heaven they say it differently. They say all honor and power and glory be unto God. I said, that's kind of like what you're saying, glory. And so then we had to find what glory was. <laughs> uh but, you know, that's, that's the praise of the Lord. That is just a sweet, uh, uh, ministry to my heart to hear her talk about it like that. And, uh, and that's kind of what Zechariah is doing here. He says, blessed be the God of Israel. What on earth, Zechariah? What's going on? He said, well, he has visited us and redeemed his people. Notice as you read verse 68, the tense of verb in 68 is past tense. It's like God has already visited us. God has already redeemed us, brought us uh, brought us back, put us in a, in a good place. Isn't it interesting? He, the last thing he said was of words of doubt. And now what's coming out of his mouth is such a confidence in God that it's as if it's past tense. God has already done these things. And that is the expectation of Zechariah now. Uh, so he's, he's visited us and he redeemed us and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. This gets us to why it's a merry time. Well, in Christmas, according to verse 69, in Christmas, God presents to us a victorious salvation. God presents to us a victorious salvation. He uses that word, horn of salvation. Again, we just don't use words like that much anymore. Uh, but, you know, think about It's referring, not necessarily to an instrument or a cornucopia, but it's referring actually to the horn of an animal, specifically an oxen, uh, a wild oxen. Uh, if you think back, uh, you know, before cars and vehicles, went, the the largest animal that you would use as a tool to help you would have been the oxen, uh, as far as just sheer mass. You know, a camel is taller, but Oxen was huge. I don't know if you ever checked out oxen close up. Uh, pretty fearful things, actually, when you see them. Uh, if you get a large dill, they're about seven feet tall on their back. And then he had the, the horns on to these wild oxen, these wild steer, going out, extended out, and it can go up to nine feet up in height. That's a fearful animal. You know, you just don't want to hang out with these things. They, they could kill you and not even know it. And so when he talks about the horn of something, it's, it's talking about strength, all right? Uh, the source of strength. And so when he's saying he's raised up a horn of salvation, the strength of salvation, the source of salvation is a strong thing that God has raised up among and exalted among us uh, in the house of his servant David. All right. Well, let's kind of break this down. He's talking about, uh, in verse 7, you realize that he's talking about a prophecy, it's going back. In fact, the prophecy he's probably referring to goes back to Psalm 132, verse 17. I'll read that for you. It says, "There I'll make the horn of David grow. I'll prepare a lamp for my anointed," referring to the Messiah. The horn of David grow. The lamp, uh, uh, a lamp for my anointed. We see in Psalm 18, verse 2, David writes, "The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust." my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In Psalm 18, verse 2, he equates the horn of salvation with God himself who, who protects him, who saves him. But we see in Psalm 132 that it's equated with the anointed, the Messiah. Why? Because God will be God through the Messiah. He will come through the Messiah. He will be God, in, uh, God with us, Emmanuel. All right, what's the big deal? Horn of salvation, you're really spending a lot of time on this. Well, what will this horn of salvation do? What will he save us from? Well, we go down to verse 71. He says he's he's raised up a horn of salvation. He's visited us, redeemed us, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Okay, great. I just don't know who my enemies are. All right, well, in that day and time, Zechariah probably had in mind the Roman Empire that was ruling over Palestine. That probably was pretty strong in his, in his mind and is thinking that the Messiah would come and give a earthly kingdom to rule over this area. But we find later on as he as he's speaking that he also includes a spiritual dynamic that Jesus centers first on and the spiritual enemy of our life. How do we know that? Well, if you keep on reading down into the, prof, uh, into the prophecy, uh, read verse 74. He says, he's come, he's visited us, he redeemed us to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. We see that phrase again. uh, Might serve him without fear, but notice how we're serving him. Not just without fear, but serving him in holiness serving him in righteousness before him all the days of our life. There's something about the enemy that keeps us from serving in holiness, that keeps us being right before God. And so God vanquishes the enemy, conquers the enemy, so that we can be holy and right. There is a spiritual dynamic that he's talking about in our enemy here. Who is the spiritual enemy? Well, it was revealed to us from the very beginning in Genesis chapter three when, when Satan came in and wanted to overthrow the power of God and the rule of God over mankind and presented an option to mankind. Man chose the option to follow Satan and thus d- death was entered into this world. And from the very beginning, God said, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of this. One day, Satan. Your force will be vanquished and it'll be done through mankind, a seed of Eve who will come and destroy the work that you've done, Satan. We see Satan referred to various times uh, throughout uh, throughout life and or throughout the word of God. Uh, it's described as a lion who's seeking to, to devour. In fact, Jesus referred to him as a thief. He said, the thief has come to steal, kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. And life more abundantly. So Jesus acknowledged uh, the work of Satan. So what God's saying here, through Zechariah, is Jesus has come to defeat the enemy of Satan. The enemy that we call Satan and his work in our life. First John uh, speaks to this in chapter 3, verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. All right? In Christ, in Christmas, we have a victorious salvation to work against the effect of Satan. What's the big deal about being saved from Satan? Does that produce a merriness within us, a joy, a thankfulness? Well... I've shared last week and I talked about how this is tied to our understanding of our need for salvation. If we don't know that we need salvation, it doesn't mean that much to us. uh, you know, another illustration is if I tell you, you know, I, I want to give you a parachute or you give me a parachute. And you give me a parachute for Christmas. I'm thinking, what are you trying to tell me? All right. What bridge you want me to jump off of? All right. What airplane you want me to jump off? Why are you giving me a parachute? And I've got all kinds of questions going on. I don't, I don't know whether to, to hate you or to thank you, you know? Uh, but if I'm on an airplane that is about to crash within seconds and you give me a parachute, ah, you are my best friend. And it will be received with much gratitude, though I don't relish the idea of jumping off an airplane. But if I have a parachute, it makes things a lot better. All right? What God is saying through through the scripture is that I'm giving you salvation. You don't know it, but you're on an airplane that's about to crash. How do you know you're on your, this airplane? It's because you've got sin in your life. You've got selfishness in your life. Uh, the Ten Commandments have been broken. You do not honor God. You do not, uh, you do commit adultery or you, you consider adultery in your heart. You, you're coveting after things constantly. You're putting things above God. You have lying in your life. You, you don't honor the, your parents that God's placed over you. you. These are things that are symptoms that let you know that you're on an airplane and it's about to crash and it's gonna, it's gonna be doomed and there needs to be salvation in your life. And so Zechariah says, "God has raised up the horn of salvation, the works of Satan. Not only is it the eternal effect in my soul, but it's also how this world works according to Satan. We've been blinded for our need for salvation because that's what Jesus—that's uh, what Satan does." Second Corinthians four, verse four. Says, Satan, whose mind, the God of this age, Satan has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We're born and we're thinking, I don't even know that I need salvation. Why? Because that is the effect of Satan blinding us uh, in our life. But then there are the effects of sin in this world that we work in. Yeah, you know, the, the song, uh, I heard the Christmas bells. Beautiful song written by Longfellow. What you may not know is a little bit about his life. If you can imagine, envision a, a uh, Victorian era family at home. And at home, they decide to take a lock of their youngest child, the lock of her hair, and they're going to they're seal it with candle wax as to remember uh, their child and the hair of their child. But as they're doing so, trying to capture this memento, her dress ignites in flames. From the candle wax. Longfellow, her father, embraces her and, and they fell, fall to the floor trying to extinguish the flames. But due to the severity of her wounds, she dies. In the midst of suffering this grief, the Civil War comes. And he has firsthand experience to the grievances and other uh, ravages of Civil War. Longfellow nurses a son who was wounded in the war. And then he writes this poem called Christmas Bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to man. See, Longfellow had hinted at this. He understood, he realized that there was a battle that goes on. Between the forces of Satan and of God. And he realized that up to now, he had always been looking at the effects of Satan, the work of Satan, and the tragedy of his family, the, the devastation of his son, the loss of his daughter, the, the destruction of a nation, and he said, "You know what? Hate is too strong." But then he was reminded that God is not dead, and there will be a day of victory. And it's that idea, that that truth that Zechariah is is tapping into, and he says, "Here, here, a child's going to be born, and and that will be the horn of salvation to deliver us from the enemies that this world that we know of disease and sickness and death, the effects of Satan, the the curse of it will be reversed." And that would be a salvation to my soul. One of my heroes in the faith, uh, Adrian Rogers, who died by a year and a half ago. When they were young, they had their first child. And uh, the child tragically died with, with sudden infant death syndrome. Discovering their baby, quiet silent in the bed. And they rushed in the car, tried to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. And he had to carry his lifeless little boy. Into the hospital. Just in anguish and grief. While he was there at the hospital, he came across one of the, the folks in the community, one of the men in the community, someone he'd been witnessing to, was trying to share about Jesus Christ and what he's done. Kind of a hard nut, calloused heart. Came up to, the, to Adrian Rogers and said, Are you still going to serve God now? Are you still going to try to preach for God now? After what all God's done to you. He looked at him and said. God didn't do this. This is the work of Satan. And I'm going to work all the more. In serving the Lord. And talk about what God has done. See he, he tapped in on something. That this world that is filled with death and sickness and, and hurt. That was not God's design. It was man's choosing and following after Satan and the effects of it. Just as sure as if you walk off a building, you will fall. If you reject God, sin will enter. And where sin enters, death enters. And so this is the world that we live in. Zechariah says, "Ah, God is raising up a horn of salvation. And he will be victorious over the enemies. Friends, that's the beautiful thing that we have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. Satan will do whatever, you, whatever he can to keep you from acknowledging Jesus as Savior and Lord. He will blind you. He will distract you. He'll do all measure of work to steal and kill your soul. But Jesus has come that you might have life. And life more abundantly that flows from the horn of salvation. So he presents to us in Christmas a victorious salvation. He says, blessed be God. Merry Christmas, because in Christmas we have a victorious salvation presented to us. But notice, as we keep on reading, we see a refrain that's repeated. It first comes to us in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his prophets who have been since the world began. He he has a, a backward look into history as he is as saying, you know, here is the horn of salvation given to us in the line of David, just as God had said would happen from from even from when the world began. And so he's looking back into the prophecies of of God. But knowing that, you see that repeated again. You see it in verse seventy two and seventy three. He says, you know. He's going to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham. You see, in this prophecy, we find in Christmas that God proves his faithful word. Why do we have a Merry Christmas? Zechariah said, we have a merry God because our God has visited us. He has redeemed us. He's given us a victorious salvation just as He said He would do. He is true to His Word. Christmas proves His faithful Word. Zechariah says, from even the beginning, from even the beginning, since the world began hearkening all the way back, going back to Genesis 3. 15, as we've studied together, we've seen when sin entered the world, God gave in, uh, gave a truth and said, Hey, this is not the final word. Eve will have a seed. There will be someone who comes from her that will be victorious over the work of Satan. Yes, yes, the seed will have their head, uh, 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 the, the heel bruised. But this one who comes will crush the head of Satan. Going all the way back to the beginning. He says... This is true just as he said in the oath that he swore to Abraham. You guys know that, don't you? Those you who have been with us, we studied Abraham. What were the oaths that God gave to Abraham that Zechariah knew and that he looked back to thousands of years before his time? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we find the first oath given by God. To Abraham. And in that oath. Remember it says. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse them who curses you. And in you. All the families of the earth. Shall be blessed. He says. Abraham Abraham heard that. God told him, it's recorded. It's happening right here. This baby will be the one that God will bless all of the earth. God repeated the earth in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. He says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. We see it repeated in Genesis 22, verse 16 to 17. God says to Abraham, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. He says, uh, There's going to be one that comes from you that will have the victory over the enemies. And he's saying specifically the enemy of Satan. God said that to Abraham thousands of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. It was copied. Written down. And we have found copies of that oath. That date back 200 years before Jesus walked this earth. And here Zechariah comes. Knowing the word of God. Knowing these prophecies well in advance. And saying, it's all about to happen. In Jesus Christ. Do you know there are over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah. That Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. When in Christmas time, what you have Is God said, Amen. And he called it Jesus. He said, I said it. And now it's done. Just look and see how I've prophesied. And it's come true. I am faithful to my word. And so in Christmas time, it is a Merry Christmas. Because God proves his faithful word. In Christmas time. Now, as we keep on reading. We'll find something else. That God provides for us. We see... Repeated again, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. But verse going on there. Why did he deliver us from our enemies? Yes, to take care of our sin, the guilt of our sin, so that we can be forgiven. But you know what? God didn't stop with being forgiven. He says he's done this that we might serve him without fear. Being fearless and serving him. He's done this that we might serve him in holiness before him. All the days of my life, serve him in holiness before God. It's one thing to be holy before mankind, but it's another thing to be holy before God. Not being holy and right before the pastor, but before God. It's amazing to me how, how folks will just, you know, they'll say some curse word and, and it'll bring to their attention that I'm on the pastor. I don't tell folks I'm a pastor normally because it's a lot more fun not to say, not to reveal that. Uh, I was talking with a, a, a salesperson this past week, and he was just cussing up a storm, you know. And I was just like, after a while, he said, what do you do? You look like a patrolman or something. I was like, well, you know, I'm actually a pastor. You know what a pastor is? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, but it's, it's funny how people feel like they have to apologize to me. I said, you know, you, I'm not your, I'm not your God. You don't have to apologize to me. You don't speak before me. You speak before God. And if it doesn't bother you to speak that way before God, then I don't know what your problem is with me. And folks will, will say uh, they have to give me excuses why they're not at church or something. You know, I, I don't keep roll. Um, you don't go to church before me. You attend church before God. And it's fascinating, what's being said here is that God has done this work. He sent a Redeemer, He sent a Messiah, He sent Jesus. So that in Christmas that you might serve Him in holiness before God. And trust me, it's a lot harder to be holy before God than it is me. Because God knows your heart, He knows your motivations. And He says, you know what, I can make you holy as, as without sin before God. That I can make you right, as in right standing before God. All the days of your life. I'm thinking, you know what, I can muster up maybe a few moments. This is the direction of my life. He's provided this through Jesus Christ. In Christmas, you see, God provides a gracious purpose. A gracious purpose. What do I mean mean by that? In Jesus, you notice it says that we might serve him. He gives us direction. He wants us to live for a reason. For a purpose. But it's gracious. Because notice how we're serving him. It's, he's done things that we could not do. Let me just give you a little short note. Mercy. Mercy and grace. What's the difference? The Mercy. God does not give us what we do deserve. Because of my selfishness. I'm, I'm made in this world that God created. That should revolve around him. But in my heart. I make it revolve around me. That is pride. That is sin. That is selfishness. And if it doesn't bother me. I'm not concerned about it. God has. Something to say about that. Judgment. Wrath. A holy wrath. He cannot stand that. He's a perfect God. He can't just pretend it doesn't happen. I deserve to be punished before God. Eternally removed from Him. But He doesn't give me that. They, though I deserve that. He gives me mercy. Grace. Grace is to give you what you do not deserve. If mercy is to withhold to not give you, grace is to give you what you do not deserve. It is unmerited. I did not earn it. I did not do anything to gain it. But God gives us some things that we don't deserve. One of which is a purpose of serving God fearlessly, wholly, righteously before Him. To be in right standing. Not, not just to, it's kind of like Black Monday. Black money. I don't know if you ever thought through the meaning of the name Black Monday. Uh, The idea is that these businesses have been operating in the red; they're not they're not bringing in money. And hopefully, on this Monday, when everybody after Thanksgiving, everybody's shopping and the money's coming in, that finally they get up above and make a profit. They're in the black. All right. It's kind of like for all of our life, we're in the red because of our sin and and our and our our pride. And there's nothing we can do about it. And the God says, okay, I will wipe away the debt. Alright, we're just breaking even. <laughs> then he says, but then I'll put you in the black. I'm going to give you some things. I'm going to give you some things. You know, I've got a, I've got a, a tool shed. I, one of the things I wanted in living in a house was a tool shed. I've got a tool shed now. Um, and I go in there from time to time and, and I've got tools and, and I get, some tools from my in and others and and the problem is that i just hadn't been able to use all my tools and a lot of these tools are, are woodworking tools you know, power saws and different things like that and i just every time i go in there i think man i wish i wish i wish i had some reason to use it and the problem is is i just don't have the mind and i don't have the time to think of woodworking projects you know, and, but nonetheless, I'm not giving you my tools. <laughs> Alright, cause I'm thinking someday I may use it. Alright? Meanwhile, they're in their box. And they're just waiting. Waiting. Will Jared someday use me? You know? I wanted to just share with you that God's given you some great tools. Tools for serving Him. To do so holily. Righteously, fearlessly. And I want to ask you, are you being who God wants you to be? Are you living for Him? Because if we're not living for Him, those tools are just sitting there waiting. And it is, what are the tools? You see him right here. He's given to us in 74 or 75 to, to serve him without fear, fears, to be fearless. God's granted us for us to be fearless in serving him. God's granted to us that we can serve him in holiness and righteousness to be in right standing before him all the days of our life, to have a life with purpose. <laughs> and so as I read this, I ask this question Am I fearlessly, wholly, holy, holy, Righteously before God, serving Him all the days of my life. If I'm not, it's not because of God. He's given me all the tools. So i because I didn't want to. I didn't want to. When I woke up the day, I thought, you know, it would be more important to do what I want to do and live for my purposes as opposed to live for the purposes of God. To love Him with all my heart. To love others. Nutshell. The purposes of God. Pastor Louis tells a story that he was he's preaching on the pervasiveness of sin. It's everywhere, he stated. He talked about waiting for a traffic light when he saw this man in the car in front of him finish his coke, open the door, and set the glass bottle on the street and drive away. Said to himself, that was wrong. It was a selfish sin. How could you even call someone to have a flat tire or even an accident? We don't often think of littering as a sin, but it is evidence of an inherent selfishness. Is it frustrating when we go into the grocery store parking lot and the, that grocery cart is right in the parking spot and you say, well, can not someone just put it in the stall? You know? That's what I think. Sometimes I say it out loud. Are you, you pull into a spot and you think, you see that someone put a a bottle right where the lines of a parking spot intersect. Right there. I think, someone just couldn't get up and put it in the trash can. They just put it right there because it was too much trouble for them. The idea is to understand that sin is everywhere. And if you can imagine your heart. Your heart is filled with the Coke bottles and grocery carts of selfishness scattered throughout when the pastor was preaching this. Pastor Louis, he was greeting folks on their way out, and then a teacher came up to him, a professor came up to him, and quietly walked by and saying this to him Sin puts the bottle on the street, but grace picks it up. And here's the beautiful thing so God's come into our heart. Not only did he pay the fine for littering in our heart, he comes into our heart and picks up. The trash. There's things that we're ashamed of. The attitudes. The actions. The lies. The things that fill our heart with guilt. It comes in. He says, I know who you are. While you're still a sinner, I sent my son to die for you. And I paid the fine. But it's not enough. I come in. Acting in grace. And I clean up your heart. I clean up your life. Why? So you can serve him. Fearlessly. That you can serve him in holiness. That so you can serve him in righteousness all the days of your life. God's not in construction projects in your life just because he's wanting something to do. God's constructing your life and working your life to build you toward a purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, uh, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, you can't earn what God does for you. Why did he do that? Verse 10. Simply because we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did God save us? Why did he take care of the penalty of his sins? Why is he working? Why does he consider us his craftsmanship? Because God's got a purpose for your life. And he wants you to fulfill it. But you can't fulfill it. As long as there's sin in your life. You can't fulfill it as long as you're following your desires. As opposed to following god and his ways in your life he's got a purpose in christmas Zecharias, he kind of got a clue for nine months of silence what on earth did he think about what was on his mind what was weighing on his life comes spilling out as being filled with the holy spirit and said blessed blessed mary be the god of israel because he has visited us he has redeemed us he has raised up a horn of of salvation. So that we will be delivered from our enemies. Just as he said would happen from the very, very beginning. And being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Just as he swore to Abraham. Being delivered. We might serve him through fear. Or serve him without fear. And holiness and righteousness. All the days before him. He says. We have a merry God. With a merry Christmas. So that we can be. His band. Of merry Men and women living for his purposes. So in the hustle and bustle. Got to keep in mind. Why do you exist? It's tied to the fact that God came to earth. And cleaned up your heart. With his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father I so thank you. That you recorded for us the words of an old man, yet a new father. Bursting out with song. Praising you. Declaring you a merry one. Merry God. So that we could have a merry Christmas. One in which we understand that a victorious salvation has been presented to us. One in which we see that you have proved your faithful word. And if you were true about all these things about Jesus. How much more will you be true about the fact that our sins are forgiven. And that there are things that happen after this life. And that that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. That we can believe these things. And that in this written word you've revealed to us. The fact that you've provided a gracious purpose for our lives. We're not just spinning our wheels using up time, breathing air. But Lord, we've been made to reflect you, to walk in the ways that would glorify you as you have already prepared for us to walk in them, Lord. You know in advance at the end of this day what this day would hold and how we could glorify you in the midst of it. Thank you, Lord. It's not about keeping the economy going, but it's about glorifying you. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.